brothers, if you want to turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, if you're new to us, you may be wondering why we're starting in 2 Corinthians 10, and the short answer is that in 2017, when I joined the faculty, I started 2 Corinthians 1, and I'm up to 2 Corinthians 10. <laughs> I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labour of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's areas of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that all of the scriptures are written for our good, that we may love you as our Lord and know what it means to live lives that please you and bring praise to you. Father, speak now and shape our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, brothers, I wonder if you've ever felt like you're in the wrestle for someone's soul. Um, one particular conversation sticks in my mind from over a decade ago. There was a young woman. Uh, I remember where I was sitting on the campus of the University of New South Wales, and I remember many of the details of the conversation. She was a lady who'd grown up in a Christian home, she loved Jesus, she'd come to university and uh, she'd kind of moved internationally in order to join us and she was coming along to church with us. Um, but her boyfriend, who'd also come from the same country, was in town uh, and was, uh, well, he wanted to move in with her, basically. And we had a conversation that lasted for about an hour and a half to two hours. And every time we would say, do you know what Jesus says to you about what it means to be godly and pure? Yes. Do you think that this is a wise idea? Oh, actually, no, it's probably not. So what do you think you're going to do about it? I think I'm going to let him move in. 
And after about the third or fourth time around that loop, I just remember feeling this deep sense of kind of sadness and despair, longing that God would shape and change her and wondering what would be the result of her making this decision for her Christian life. Have you ever felt like you're in the wrestle for somebody's soul? You see, in this last part of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul feels like he's at war, he's wrestling for the souls of the Corinthians because Paul's in the middle of what you might call a perfect ministry storm. Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth, he'd preached the gospel, people had come to Jesus, he'd established the church and he'd moved on and after leaving, there was another group who'd come and started to have influence, people that Paul will in a few chapters' time describe as the super-apostles. And these super-apostles have come bringing actually a different truth, a different gospel, a different understanding of Jesus and his work. And Paul is in anguish about the potential future for the Corinthian souls. Just a couple of verses after the end of our chapter, chapter 11, verse 2, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Have you ever felt like you're in a wrestle for somebody's soul? Paul is in the midst of a wrestle for the souls of the Corinthians. But it's also deeply personal. Because Paul, who brought the gospel to them, the way these super apostles are undermining Paul's gospel is also by undermining Paul's integrity. You see it pop up in a couple of places in the passage. See it, first of all, there, verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. Where does that little thing kind of pop up out of? Um, 2 Corinthians is a bit like listening to one end of a very complex phone call. And you get these little snippets of stuff that you kind of piece together over time. But you see the idea pop out again down in verse 10. There are some who say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. There are people who are interpreting Paul's actions and the way that he's lived in relationship with the Corinthians and creating a narrative that explains his ministry in a different way. In fact, it's what we've seen all the way through 2 Corinthians. Back in chapter 1, Paul had written a letter saying that he was coming. He didn't turn up because he didn't want to cause them more anguish, but these people have whispered in people's ears, Paul doesn't come because he's two-faced. He says one thing, he does another. Now, here in chapter 10, Paul's also... Well, he sounds tough when he's away and he writes these grumpy letters, but he's a complete pussycat. When he turns up, he's a whip. He's not going to do any of the things that he's said that he's going to do. And the way that they're chipping away at Paul's gospel is actually by chipping away at Paul and his integrity. Now, I just want you to imagine for a moment, right? There are people that you've preached Christ to, seen come to Jesus and you've discipled them, and now you've moved away and you've heard stories about the fact that they're starting to receive a different gospel. And the different gospel that they've received has come along with a tax on you, on whether you're really as truthful as you say that you are, whether you have acted with integrity. Now, I just, just really think about that. What do you reckon you're going to think and feel at that moment in time? What's going to boil up inside you? What's your natural reaction? You're going to feel angry? You're going to feel self-righteous? You're going to feel disappointed? Are you going to despair? Are you going to retreat? Are you going to attack? What kind of feelings will you have? 
And how might you respond in light of your feelings? Not just how will you respond to the people who are being drawn away, but given that all those things are going on inside you, what might you do at home with your spouse? Or what might you say to your children? Or what might you say to someone that you're having a bit of a disagreement with over the back fence who's a neighbour that you normally get on with? Ministry is a place of deep pressure because in love for people, we preach the gospel into people's lives, longing for their souls to be saved, and we wrestle with them, and it's a very hard place to remain godly. And in this chapter, I want you just to explore with me a little bit about what it looks like for the Apostle Paul to love God and to act with integrity and grace in a place of such pressure. Now, I want you to notice that, first of all, Paul's got language to describe what's going on for him. He feels like his ministry is a war. And you notice the the war language all through that first paragraph. Listen to how he describes it. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul experiences his ministry as a war, a war for the souls of people and a war in a spiritual place. And this passage here is full of the language of warfare. Uh, There are weapons, there are powers, there are strongholds that are built up defences that need to be brought down if people are going to be rescued. There are arguments that need to be destroyed. There are opinions that need to be taken captive to the one who is actually owed true allegiance. And there are disobediences that need to be punished. It's this language of kind of pressure and war and, and yet you stop and you think about what he's saying... You need spiritual eyes to be able to see that this is the world in which you're doing ministry because it all looks so peaceful and quiet and civilised. Because what's the power at work? It's lies. And what's the thing that's a problem? Well, it's the arguments and the lofty opinions that raise themselves against the knowledge of God. It probably looks a lot of the time like polite conversation, like civil engagement, like philosophical toying with ideas. Paul sees the engagement with the truth and the potential for people's hearts as an actual conversation that's about a fight. It's about a fight for people's souls because the evil one is bringing untruth that will lead people away from Jesus. And the truth that he brings, he actually believes, has the power of God to shape and reframe people's thinking in ways that transforms their whole life from walking away from Christ to turning to walk towards Christ as their King and Saviour and to find life and hope in him. But do you notice what Paul is suggesting about the world in which you do your ministry? You are actually in the middle of a battle, brothers. You live in a world awash with the rejection of God. And it really is. The stuff, when I just sit sometimes and try to think objectively about what I get fed every day, from my news feed and from the social media stuff and from the things that I watch and whatever, story after story after story that gives an entirely different explanation of the world in which I live. 
the stories that you hear about sex and sexuality and what we should do with it and what it looks like for it to be healthy and not healthy. The stories about possessions or experiences or the things that make life living and the places that you might put your hopes or dreams. Stories about power and who's in control and how you should stand up for yourself because nobody else will and how you need to attack back before others attack you. Have you actually ever kind of unpicked and thought about the stories that you watch and get told and that you read and the ways that things get framed? We live in a world that's not neutral but where people are telling me all the time stories that shape my pleasures and my hopes and my dreams and they're inviting me to put those in places apart from in the living God and his hope that he will one day restore the world and that he is your heavenly father and that the way that he thinks and lives and loves, which is radically different from the world, is also for our good. The one who loves in patience and peace and with self-sacrifice. The one who knows all of your sins and mine and is still willing to forgive. The one who, when wronged, takes initiative and loves. The one who refuses to stand on his rights and call down the angels and bring vengeance even when the world nails him to the cross. The strongholds of jealousy and lust and anger and greed that sit in our hearts and bring rebellion against God tempt us away again and again and again. And do you notice that Paul, in the midst of all of this, believes that he has a truth which is the divine power of God which will transform people's hearts and minds to bring them into relationship with God and forgiveness from their Father in heaven. Now I want you to stop and think for a minute about what's possible to happen in the face of war. How do people in the trenches react when they're living in the middle of a war? You've seen enough war movies to know the options, right? There's the guy who sits catatonic in the trench while everybody else goes over the top because he's been so paralysed by fear that he can't move. There's the guy who's given himself up to substance use because it's the only way that he can cope with the difficulty and the pain that he's seeing. There's the guy who goes slightly crazy and out of his mind, almost berserk, as he kind of throws himself over the top in a fit of passion as a way of coping with the moment. It's fascinating what people do in response to the threat and pressure of being at war. Now, if you live in a place where you're trying to do ministry with people who you love, who are walking away and coming and going, and what's your response? What are the places that you run and hide? What are the behaviours that might be unhealthy that come out of you because you live in that place of pressure? And what would they look like in relationship with others? I invite you to look again at what Paul is saying here about his own response. Chapter 10 and verse 1. And I want you to think about what tone you should read these words with. Now listen to this. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I'm present I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. 
Now, there's, a, there's a reading of that paragraph, isn't it? Is that how you think that Paul is speaking? Is there kind of this undertone of invective? Is there kind of veiled threat in this passage? I want to tell you about my authority as an apostle. I want to tell you I'm going to punish every disobedience. Is Paul actually acting out of anger and self-defense and self-righteousness in this? You could actually misread this paragraph in a way which misunderstood what Paul's doing, I think. Let me read it to you again in the way that I think that Paul is speaking. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Isn't it fascinating how differently you can read that paragraph? Is Paul exasperated? I reckon he's exasperated. Is he unsettled? Is he unsure? Are there things that are wrestling around with him? I think there are. Are there bits that poke out? Yes, they are. But fundamentally, what does Paul want to do? He wants to act and live to entreat by the meekness of gentleness of Christ, even knowing that his weapons actually wage war and tear down strongholds. You see, brothers, in the face of attack, and in the face of feeling like people are against us in ministry, it's possible to resort to all sorts of unhealthy ways of trying to persuade them back to Jesus. Do you try to berate people back into relationship with Jesus? Do you try to wield your personality in a way to force an outcome? Do you just retreat and ignore them and say, well, I, it's, not, it's not even worth speaking? Um, what are the temptations that come? And what would it mean to actually hold a position where in meekness and gentleness you speak the truth of Jesus in love, calling a spade a spade, asking people to take account of the wrongs that they have done, calling them back to Christ, and yet in a way that continued to flow from an honouring of Jesus as Lord and out of grace and respect for others. Because listen and think about what Paul says about his authority in verse 8. Even if I boast a little too much of our authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Do you think that that's a threat? Do you think Paul's threatening? I don't think he's threatening. I actually think if you read the rest of this letter and you read the rest of his New Testament correspondence and you understand his appreciation of the gospel of Christ, he's not trying to threaten. What he is saying is, because I love you and because I love Jesus, when I come, if there are still issues here, I'm going to have to stand up and call some people to account. I'm going to have to say to some people face to face, you were wrong. You've made a mistake here. You need to turn away from this sin. This is unhelpful. But I don't think that he's doing that out of this kind of deeply kind of nasty, threatening, using his personality, trying to unsettle people. Isn't it interesting that you can perform the same act with different motivations 
which actually bring very different results. Paul knows that he's God's servant. He knows that the gospel is the weapon by which God will destroy strongholds and change people's lives. And so he is determined to proclaim it in truth. He knows that there are moments when that is going to demand of him that he sits with people and looks them in the eye and says, this is wrong and it needs to stop. And I want to exhort you to turn away from it. But all the time he's wrestling in a place where he himself has been attacked and sin crouches at the door. But do you notice then that Paul does not want to play the comparison game? Verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. You see, for Paul, one of the ways of coping with being attacked and being in this place is to start the comparison game. I'm better than them. You should listen to me because I'm better than them. Brothers, perhaps as we think about what it means to honour Jesus in the face of loving people with the pastoral pressure of people walking away, what will it look like not to be someone who is concerned about your own reputation and who is determined to bolster your reputation by the way that you speak about yourself in comparison to others? I wonder whether you've ever caught yourself and maybe this is just me, of a conversation at morning tea or with someone at church, just subtly dropping some information about someone that you know or something that you've learnt or your many years of experience or your ability in this or that as a way of bolstering who you are. I wonder if you engage in little subtle ways. I would expect that none of you here, you're actually probably too smart to do the just stand up beat your chest and say I'm better than everybody else thing but what does it mean to be someone who's actually concerned not to compare themselves but to keep longing for the things of Jesus because do you notice that Paul longs for the Corinthians not just for themselves but for the progress of the gospel verse 13 we'll boast we will not boast beyond limits but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you for we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labours of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another area of influence. Paul longs for the Corinthians to know Jesus for their sake and so that they might support him to see the honour of Christ proclaimed even beyond them and into the world. So, as we finish, I just want to ask you, brothers, what are the temptations that you in particular face? Not generally out there, what, not what's it possible to be tempted by, but just think for yourself for a minute. When you are in ministry and you're wrestling with people and you're trying to speak to them about the truth and they're not listening, or you're encouraging them to put away sin and they're not responding, where do you jump to? How do you seek to uphold your reputation? What unhealthy ways do you move to in order to force a result? I can think of lots of possibilities. Not many of them are very helpful. And so I want you, as we finish, 
to just go away and chew on 2 Corinthians 10 and the last two verses, 17 and 18, because I think this underlies the whole chapter. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. What will it mean for you to be content that it is God who knows your heart and that you have acted with an integrity that he will commend at the end, even if you cannot defend your behaviour to anybody else and others think ill of you because of the way that you've acted in ministry. Can I encourage you at morning tea, why don't you share a story with someone of someone in your ministry life that you think has embodied this in some way, shape or form. Someone who has ministered the gospel with such meekness and gentleness in love, but who has been so faithful and strong as to call sin to account and to invite people to repentance with quiet confidence in God. Why don't you share some stories of people like that in your own lives with each other over morning tea and give thanks to God and pray that God might do it in you. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you so much for our dear brother, the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his confidence in the gospel, for his understanding of the warfare in which he was engaged, for his desire to act with integrity, and for his belief that the gospel was the way in which strongholds would be brought down and lives would be changed. Father, might you build our confidence in the gospel of Jesus. Father, might you help us, particularly perhaps in this room, those of us who are struggling particularly with our sin at the moment because of the pressure of the ministry in which we find ourselves. And Father, might you help all of us to find contentment in your commendation, being unwilling to compare ourselves with others. Father, we long for this in Jesus' name. Amen.